Welcome to Heart of Worship Church Podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play, or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. The fifth cup. The word that I have for you today is the fifth cup. I want to talk to you about this fifth cup because you see at the time of Passover, there's a ritual that the Israelites would go through. They would sit and they would sup and they would go over the elements of the Passover. And through this process, there were four cups that they would drink from, or they would drink four different times, each time reciting one of the promises of God and then taking a sip because in their culture, drinking from this cup was a sign of covenant. But originally there was a fifth cup because there's another promise that is given in scripture. And we see exactly what it is in the book of Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 15 where it says, And thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand and cause all nations to whom I send you to drink of it. And they shall drink and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then took I the cup at the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink unto whom the Lord had sent me. The fifth cup was a cup of wrath. And if we read a little earlier in this passage, we see that the wrath of the Lord was poured out upon these people specifically because that the people and their leaders served themselves. They did their own will and not God's will. So in the time of the early rabbis, when they were discussing and trying to decide whether or not this cup would be included in the Passover, there was a contention among them because some said that it should be. It's in the scripture. It is a cup. It is a promise. It is a covenant. That if we will not do God's will, then he will pour out a cup of judgment. But then others said, no, we don't want to put this in the Passover. And so they could not come to a consensus. And so a decision was made. There was a prophecy that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, before the wrath of God be poured out, God would send Elijah the prophet to turn the hearts of the children back to the father and the hearts of the father back to the children. So they said, well, it's okay. We don't need to incorporate it. We'll just wait until Elijah comes and then he can decide what should be done about this cup of judgment. And so early on in the Passover tradition, the fifth cup was called Elijah's cup, but then later got changed to Elijah's coming. And so now at the end of the Passover supper, a child goes and opens the door to see if Elijah is coming because that they decided to leave it up to him what should be said about this cup of judgment. As the Lord brings this revelation to my heart and my mind, I'm reminded of another time that the children of Israel had to drink from a cup. It was in the time of the wilderness when Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God and to receive his law and his covenant. Yet the people were down in the valley. They took their gold, they took their mammon, they took their materialism and they melted it down and they built a golden image, a calf, and they began to worship it and say, this be the God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. 
God himself was on the mountain with Moses. He had given them a prophet to release his word to them. All they had to do was believe it and follow his leading. And he was going to bring them by covenant into promise. Yet they took matters into their own hand. They created their own service. They set up idols and images and they took their gold and they worshiped it. And they said it was mammon. It was money. It was the production. It was the performance. It was all of this that you see before you that saved this people that took us out of the land of Egypt, that caused us to walk out of Goshen and into this wilderness to be led forth to promise. It was this that saved us. And jealousy arose in the heart of a faithful God who loved them and had covenanted himself to them, yet were they cheating on him with this golden image, this other God, this counterfeit that they themselves had created. They worshiped the work of their own hands. They worshiped their gold and their mammon, and they gave it the credit for delivering them, causing others to think that it was something more than what it really was, that there was life in it, that there was power in it when there was nothing in it. And so they worked up the people and built their charismatic service around it to make it seem like there was. And what the Lord God Almighty himself had truly done, they accredited to it to make it seem like it was something. Because they wanted more to put faith in their own doing than in a supernatural husbandman. And so when Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees it and he's so torn in his heart and, and he throws the Ten Commandments before them and the law is broken at their very feet, he takes this golden image, he takes this idol, he takes this mammon, he takes this piece of Egypt that they had brought with them into the wilderness and he crushes it and he grinds it fine as powder and he mixes it with water and he puts it in a cup and he says, now drink of it. It was a cup of wrath. Why did he do this? You see, I believe for the answer, we can go to Numbers chapter 5 when a commandment is given to the priest about what to be done when a bride is unfaithful to her husband. When she cheats on him with another. It says that if the husband become jealous for his wife, because that he believes that she has not been faithful, that she is cheating on him, that she has given her love and adoration, her respect and her reverence, her service and appreciation to another, just like the Israelites did with this service that they created, this idol. It says that he is to take her to the priest and the priest is to gather dust from the floor of the tabernacle, which would have been laden with gold. So it would have been gold dust, just like the ground up image and to put it in a cup of water and cause her to drink it. And if she is guilty, if her heart has strayed from her husband, if she has loved another, if she has defiled herself by cheating on her husband, then the cup becomes a cup of wrath, a curse, and it poisons her. But if she is innocent, it does not harm her. And so you see in this, what Moses was doing was allowing God to prove who was innocent and who was guilty of this sin, whose heart was truly for him and who was cheating on him with the Antichrist spirit, with mammon, with Egypt. 
the cup of wrath was the cup of a husband jealous for his bride who has betrayed him for another right before his eyes. It's spiritual adultery and it provokes judgment. And so the rabbis at this time, they said, we'll wait for Elijah because we know the prophecy. We know there's a cup of wrath. We understand that it is to be poured out on those who are unfaithful to God, unbelieving, those who don't follow his leading, those who are self-willed, those who will not submit to him as a husbandman who loves them and wants to protect and cover them. But when they choose to walk out of that covering, they also walk out of the blessing and the protection of it and they are susceptible to the wrath that must be poured out because that he is a jealous husband but we don't know what to do with this cup so we're just gonna wait till elijah comes and he'll tell us what to do with it so then we fast forward to the time of jesus and we see a time when the disciples and his followers are asking him about this very prophecy if you be the messiah where is elijah because we know that it has been prophesied that Elijah must come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, that there is a judgment that must be poured out for sin. But before that happens, Elijah steps in to profess it, to prophesy it, to prepare the way of it. And Jesus, with no uncertainty, begins to explain to them that this prophecy is already fulfilled in John the Baptist. In fact, if you read in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, the words that the angel of the Lord spoke to Zacharias and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, you will see that the angel actually told them specifically that he will bear the spirit of Elijah, which is the spirit of prophecy, true prophecy. Not what man says that it is, not what man wants it to be. But what it truly is, it is the spirit of prophecy, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Judgment is coming and except you repent and put your faith in salvation, the only one who can save you from it and walk in his righteousness, you too will drink of it. This is why Jesus told the blind Pharisees that they could not see the time or the season that they were in, that they were missing their chance of repentance, their time of visitation, because they were looking for a carnal sign, something grand, something entertaining, rather than simply believing what God was saying through the prophet, through the spirit of Elijah that he had sent forth, that he was releasing. He said, you will get no sign. You will get no miraculous thing. You will get nothing entertaining. You will get only the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what was the sign of the prophet Jonah? A man standing in the place of judgment saying, it is coming. Repent. Turn your hearts back to righteousness. You must realign your faith with the words of God and his ability to save you. If you will but be faithful to him, put your trust in him and him only and cry out with fasting and prayer, then he himself will step down, meet you there and you shall be saved. This is the only sign that Jesus said proceeds wrath. 
because that all the other signs had already been given. So when the time comes for judgment to be poured out, he sends a word to reaffirm what he has already spoken. He sends the spirit of Elijah, a preacher of righteousness, one willing to stand and speak the truth of God that men might be given one more chance to align with it, that they might be saved from judgment. This is why he says that he does nothing except he reveal it to his servants, the prophets, first. My friend, I assure you that the spirit of Elijah always comes before wrath to provide the choice, to point to the way of escape, to preach righteousness and repentance to point to Jesus, who is salvation. In fact, the very name Jesus literally means salvation. He saves. This is why the angel of the Lord told Mary, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. If we are willing to humble ourselves fast and pray and cry out to him like the people of Nineveh did, then he himself will step in and stay judgment. There is no other way. You cannot put your faith in men, in mammon, in the Antichrist system, in false religion, in Egypt, or in unity with it. Only Jesus can save. And if we truly believe in his name, then we must believe that he and he alone is able to save. If we will repent fast, which is humbling yourself before the Lord, pray, cry out to him, then he will do it. But if you put your faith, if you give credence to any other thing, you tie his hands and he will have nothing to do with it. You've chosen another lover. You've built a golden calf and said, this be the God that saved us from Egypt. The only way of escape from judgment, whether it be eternal judgment in hellfire or carnal judgment for sins committed on this earth, personal, corporate, or national, the only escape from judgment is to have faith in Jesus, in who he is, that you will humble yourself to what he has said to believe that he is the only way of escape to seek him until you find him hear him and obey him that you might be found in right standing having faith in him to save you from it and nothing else not mammon not the works of your hands not conferences not big names or performances not stages not the inventions of men like the golden calf in the wilderness, Jesus, only Jesus, his blood, his righteousness, what he says is right, professed and proclaimed by the preacher of righteousness that those who believe might be saved. It always happens this way. This is why before the great wrath of God was poured out upon the earth in the time of Noah, it says that he saved Noah, the eighth man, a preacher of righteousness. He always sends 
the spirit of Elijah. He always sends that Holy Ghost fire. He always sends the one standing in the wilderness, crying out, repent, because judgment is coming. And there comes a time where he shuts the door on the ark and we have no more time to align with his word. We have to face what begins to be poured out. We don't like to talk about this cup of wrath. And I don't blame you for that. Jesus even cringed at the thought of it as he knelt in the garden of Gethsemane and he cried out, Oh God, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup do you think he was talking about? The other four cups of the Passover. Remember, this was happening during the Passover. All four cups of the Passover, they were blessings. They were promises. They were good things things. The people, they were still waiting for Elijah, the prophet, to come to show them what was going to happen with this cup of wrath. They didn't see that it was John the Baptist standing before them, crying out, repent. They didn't recognize the spirit of Elijah had already been sent. They didn't see it. They didn't believe it. They were still waiting for it. But Jesus was kneeling in the garden, praying because he understood that the fifth cup was coming and he had to make a decision not my will but thy will be done father I will drink of it I will be the ark that saves them from it if you think that you can fight it in the physical my friend this is not coming from the enemy it is coming from the cup of the Lord and you will not stop it except that you bend the knee and humble yourself and cry out Jesus save me I believe you I believe in what you did for me I have faith in what you say to me I will preach righteousness I will turn men towards you because let me explain something to you there were two groups of people at the time of the crucifixion that were trying to find redemption from the oppression of the enemy that was coming against them. Rome was occupying them. The enemy had taken control of the government. They had Hellenized the church. They had perverted the word. They had brought in things in the culture that caused the people to walk in opposition to the word and will of God. And you had the rabbis of which Jesus was among them and the people that followed him that were praying and crying out for the Savior to come and save them from it. But then you had another group. You had the zealots who, though they believed in God and professed with their mouth all of the right talk. Yet were they constantly trying to win this fight in the physical, in the carnal. They weren't praying and seeking by faith for revival in the spiritual that might save men's souls. They were fighting a revolution in the physical and damning more to hell in the process because that they were turning their attention away from the very one who was able to save them that Jesus had stepped in the spirit of Elijah had been released the word was going forth truth was being manifested and, and people were standing in the valley of decision yet they missed their time of visitation because they were so focused on fighting this fight in the political and in the physical 
In fact, it was this very people that Jesus was talking about when he rode into Jerusalem and he wept and he cried out and he said, oh, how I would have saved you. How I would have gathered you as chicks under my wings and protected you. I myself would have turned the tide on this. Jesus cried over them and said, I would have saved you from this. I would have protected you. But because you missed the time of your visitation, because you keep taking things into your own hands and trusting in the strength of man, then they will come and build a wall around you. They will overrun you, overtake you. They will dash your children. You will see your children destroyed before your very eyes. Jesus prophesied the destruction that would come upon the resistance that was rising up in the midst of the children of Israel because they were trying to win this fight in the physical. And one of the saddest things in history is the story of the zealots because they started out with a heart after God. They started out wanting to see their nation turned back wholeheartedly to the service of the Lord. But when he stepped in to save them, they missed him because they were so focused on doing it themselves the way they thought that it should be done. That in the end, they had trusted so much on themselves and the works of their hands and how they thought this fight should be won. That everything Jesus prophesied to them came to pass. The enemy surrounded them, overtook them. And as they stood in their very last stronghold, the men still taking matters into their own hands, killed their own wives and children and then themselves because they would not submit to cry out to Jesus. He is salvation. He makes a way of escape. He is the ark. When you take matters into your own hands and try to win spiritual fights through physical means, at the very least, you cause the people to labor in vain. And at the worst, you distract them and cause them to miss their only chance of truly being saved. The zealots were distracted with their campaigns and they missed the time of their visitation. Jesus drank of the cup of wrath that we might have access to his righteousness. But if you waste it, if you don't put your faith in it, if you still trust in the gold and the idols, and the production, and the traditions, and the antichrist system that's been incorporated in to the things that were meant to be pure and holy, like the Pharisees were. They had bought into a Hellenistic religion. It was no longer pure and undefiled. It was so mixed and corrupted, yet still they clung to it. They didn't have faith in the one that God had sent to redeem them from it. And I assure you that the church today is doing the same. They have more 
faith in the traditions of men, in money, in mammon, in stage, in production, in personality, in performance, in entertainment than they do in the name of Jesus. Or they would spend more time crying out to him, fasting and praying and believing, and they would see him step in and save this nation before judgment is poured out on it. But they don't have faith in their king. They won't stop and bend the knee. They won't cry out and believe in his name, which means salvation. He can save me. I believe in him. I choose my place in the ark. I choose my place in him. He drank the cup of wrath for me that I might escape and step in to his covenant. Let me explain something to you, my friend. There is always someone to point men to righteousness, to call them to repentance and realignment with the words of Jesus, to call people to put their faith in him and him only, to believe in his name that he can save, to cry out to him and trust him, but also to release the warning that if you do not, if you're not a faithful bride, if you put your trust and give your love to anything else, if you trust in this filthy, spotted, Balaam, idolatrous, counterfeit system, then you will face judgment and not be protected from it. Because you see the spirit of Elijah, he doesn't come to perform, doesn't come to entertain, it doesn't come seeking vain glory or to magnify its name. It comes to point to the way of escape from the judgment, but it's up to you to choose to partake of it. His job is to turn the hearts of the children back to the father and the heart of the father back to the children to allow one more opportunity for repentance, for reconciliation, that they might be saved from what is coming. What will save a city? Only Jesus. For he alone is salvation. It's not the performances the sacrifices, the labors, the sweat, or the blood of men. It is the blood of Jesus that is the door to the ark. It is your covenant. It is the only way in. See, this is what unity truly is. True biblical unity, unity with the spirit is matrimony. It's being unified with Christ through the covenant that he has given us the other cup the communion cup the cup of promise because in the end my friend we will all drink of one of them we will choose to be the true bride of Christ and stand unified with him drinking of the cup of communion or we will stand unified an unholy bride married to the spirit of this age, even that Antichrist. And we will drink of the cup of the wrath of the Lord, stored up unto judgment and poured out on all those who partook of it. That covering, that protection, that salvation, it only applies to his bride. Anyone outside of the ark of the covering, they still face the wrath, the judgment. Those who are truly unified with him 
in holiness. Because you see, the wrath still applies to the adulteress. The one still in unity with Egypt, the world system, the antichrist spirit. You can be married to the world system, to the wrong husband, and there is no protection in him. In fact, there is only judgment for being in agreement with him. Like those who partook of the fornication, encouraged to them by Balaam, the false prophet, who convinced them that it was okay to partake in the things of the world. And for it, they lost their covering, their protection, and wrath was poured out upon them, and many of them died because of it. You see, there's two cups in this story. We've been talking about the fifth cup, the cup of wrath. The one that Jesus, who did not need to take of it because he was not guilty of any sin. Therefore, was he the only one worthy to trade his righteousness for our wickedness and be willing to drink of it on our behalf? But there was another cup given at the Last Supper when the disciples came and sat with him. And he broke of his body and he said, partake. And then he gave them the cup of communion and they drank. You see, this was part of an Israelite marriage covenant. It was how the bride and the bridegroom became engaged, espoused. It's how he committed to her and she to him of their love and faithfulness. They would come together and they would share a meal and then they would drink from the same cup. This was a covenant. This was the bride saying, I am in agreement to be faithful to my groom. I will wait for him while he goes and prepares a place for me. And one day he's going to come back and receive me and I'm going to be faithfully committed to him in the waiting through the process. And in the process of Jesus doing this. The bride, which is represented by the disciples, the church of Jesus Christ, they are taken in to his protection, his covenant, his righteousness. He drunk the cup of our wrath and fulfilled the old covenant, the law of sin and death, that our sin would bring death because the wages of sin or death. And then he gave us a new cup, a new covenant. He said, in this will you be my bride. You're given another chance to be faithful to me and to abide, to remain, to stay by my side. And everything that is mine will be yours. They drank. It was his last will and testament. It was the last thing that he expressed the desire of his will before his crucifixion. And at his crucifixion, the last will and testament was put into action because that the tester had now passed all of the authority, power, kingship, possession, everything that was his was transferred to the bride. And she received it with promise and with protection so that for all those who believe in him in his name that he is salvation all of those who choose to divorce the world system and to make him their groom their husbandman him and him only there is protection there is salvation there is infilling of the holy spirit there is his leading, his guiding, his direction, his correction ever preparing us to be that pure and spotless bride as we wait for him because he's coming. The communion cup is for the bride. 
the bridegroom took her cup of wrath and instead gave her a cup of promise. But the reality still remains that Jesus himself said you cannot serve two masters. So I assure you today that the bride that unifies with the spirit of Antichrist rejects the cup of promise, her covenant of faithfulness, her agreement, her engagement, her covering, who would have protected her from the cup of judgment. Jesus is coming, my friend, but so is judgment. The cup of wrath will be poured out on all those who are married to the world. Remember that the Bible says that to be friends with the world makes you the enemy of God. We must always be cautious. The Antichrist system always preaches unity, but it's unity with Egypt. It's unity with man. It's unity with sin and compromise. It's unity with the spirit of Antichrist. It seeks for mammon. It seeks idolatry. It seeks vain glory. It seeks to build earthly kingdoms. It speaks of itself, but unity with the spirit of God is a marriage. It's a covenant. It's a commitment to be wholly set apart in matrimony with the very spirit of the living God. And that demands separation, which is holiness. You cannot have true unity without holiness. Holiness is separation for all that stands against the name of God and what he has spoken. It is love for him above all. All the desires of this earth or the attention of men. Moses esteemed the sufferings of Christ of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt. He would not unify with the enemy. He took God's side. And so today I'm telling you, my friend, that God is calling for the Elijahs again. He is calling for those who are willing to preach righteousness. He is calling for those who will stand in the wilderness and say, repent, repent, because sin will be judged and except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. We must choose to stand in unity with the spirit of God. It is a marriage. And in order to be set apart and holy unto him, a faithful bride, white and without spot or compromise, we must reject the Antichrist spirit. We must despise the worship of mammon. We must worship Jesus and cry out to him. We've got to be a people of faithfulness. Because unity with the spirit will demand a separation from the world because we have to come to the realization that if God says that friendship with the world makes you the enemy of God, then it stands to reason that friendship with God will more often than not make you the enemy of the world. You're not going to be popular for it. You're not going to be loved for it. You're going to be despised and rejected just like your groom was. So let me ask you, my friend, when he is despised and rejected, are you willing to stand with him? When his words are not believed or laughed and scorned at, are you willing to stand with him? Because there is a false unity in this world. The Antichrist spirit, according to scripture, will unify the world. He will unify that which is flesh. He will unify religions and denominations. He will unify armies and nations, and it will all be unified against the Holy One of Israel. It will be unified against Jesus and his bride, his true bride, those who were willing to be unified 
with him and stand for holiness. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Jesus is coming, according to scripture, for a pure and spotless bride. Choose his side. Choose to abide. And he will hide you in the shadow of the Almighty, in the day of wrath, when unbelief, sin, idolatry, and unfaithfulness is dealt with. My friend, I assure you that you cannot preach true grace without also preaching judgment, or the people will not understand the reason for it. That because of faith in God's righteousness, we must seek him, hear him, believe him, and separate from sin and all worldliness, which by definition is holiness, to walk in unity or matrimony with his spirit unto salvation. Put as simply as I can, I leave you in the valley of decision and say that to truly be protected from the wrath to come, you must be hidden in him. You must be one. So as the marriage vows between a groom and a bride, you need to meet him at the altar in communion, commitment, and covenant, being willing to speak it, that I choose him forsaking all others from this day forward. And the bride said, I do. But as for you, choose ye this day whom you will serve. Choose your cup. Choose the one that you most love. Thank you for listening to Heart of Worship Church podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play, or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.